Today I wanted to talk about something which is particularly topical. Um, I think I'm in a pretty good place uh, to talk about uh, this particular subject because as a chemist I have a deep understanding and affinity to how chemistry works. And of course I'm a stakeholder in this planet and I have small children, I want the planet to work and, and to survive. And, and so we're coming to times where we've been talking this morning here in terms of circular economy and an idea that we, a recognition that we have to have maybe changed some of our approaches, we have to work out new ways to, to maintain or increase living standards, standards, but at the same time being sustainable. And maybe integral into this is our plastics. Now, uh, they say you are never, never more than a meter away from plastic. I can see many of you, some of you on your faces, probably having at least uh, the materials of your glasses, at least slightly plastic, your mobile telephones, indeed the, the bottle of refreshment which I shall now uh, drink from, are all made from plastics. They are ubiquitous. Indeed, we live in the polymer age. So, human, humankind, mankind have always determined or named their, the age in which we live in according to the materials we use. And it, beginning with things like the Stone Age, and then go progressing through you know, brass and copper and, and iron, and then eventually to the polymer. Interestingly, that, that sort of, that change is also associated with a, a chemical or chemistry sophistication. So, when we started off using materials of stone, well, stone is literally an existing material that's already there, we just pick up and use. When you start looking at things like iron, the Iron Age, you actually have to do some chemistry. You need to remove, you have to understand that the iron is hidden in its oxide ore and you have to be able to manipulate the chemistry to get the iron out to use. But now we live in a really a synthetic, a, 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 a human synthetic age of polymers. Not completely, there are many polymers which are natural, but we have come to the age in our progression as a species where we're able to determine what properties we need and actually make materials that serve those properties. We've almost become rather godlike, really, with our understanding of materials and chemistry. So this is an age where we have tremendous power, and we can use that power to determine what the future can be. Now, plastics are, are the, within that context, within this age, they're our product. And it seems a material that we love to hate. I don't think many of us hate stone or or iron, or, or wood, or glass, but many people hate plastics, they, they hate plastics. So I, I was, that's quite an intriguing sort of paradox for me as a chemist. After all, plastics are something we make, we had to be really clever to be able to do so. So to sort of hate your own child, as it were, from, from, the, chemi from the chemistry is an interesting paradox. And yet I feel it, I understand it, I have a sympathy with that stance. So I wanted to explore this love-hate relationship, well, I, I love to hate it, from, a, from the unique perspective I have. And so I'm going to begin with a, a paper I, I found in the literature, because the first thing is, is you know, there's two operative words 
in the title, To Love and To Hate. So I asked myself, well, why do we hate? And indeed, science does look into why we hate. I mean, it, it's probably rather obvious to us why we love. Indeed, I do lectures about the chemistry of love and why we have mechanisms of love, but that's another lecture. So why we hate is something rather different. And it's interesting, the scientists, they, they come up, there's, first of all, we hate persons, groups, or plastics, more because of who they are than because of what they do. So there seems to be a, perhaps a, a mirage, uh, the, a confusion in the real reasons why we hate anything, even plastics. Hate can be reassuring and self-protective. This also makes sense in our hatred of plastics. I think we're worried that somehow they're going to really damage our environment to the extent to which that we have a genuine fear. Now, when you have that genuine fear, then there's a, a simple message which helps confirm people's belief in a world, in a just world. So hatred is often a simplified emotion. We often, we often tend to look at things very yes, no, binary, bad, good, black and white. So the tendency when we hate things is to oversimplify. Now, what I wanted to do was to show you, I mean, it's easy to see, it's easy to engender feelings of hate. Now, these are photographs I can pick off the internet for free, so I, I didn't find the most dramatic. You, you know the most dramatic photographs. It is easy to see these things and feel a hatred. The question is, is this hatred justified? Is it really something that we should have? I mean, do we hate plastics for being plastics or do we hate them for what they actually do or don't do? That's the serious question if we want to seriously uh, remedy the current problem. And what I've been doing the last couple of years is I've been w involved in two projects uh, with, uh, with Unipetrol. One is called Michael's Reactions, both, both of which are on YouTube. So I'm, I'm just going to mention them. You can, you can watch them at your leisure. Michael's Reactions is a, is a series of programs looking at the properties of certain plastics, which are in general use. And then another one's called Let's Talk About It. And that's meeting people who've got skin in the game, real experts from the scientists, uh, the technologists, the people who are looking after our wastes, people who are in, involved in government organisation, legislation, businesses, new entrepreneurs in trying to apply principles of the circular economy into our plastic economy, our plastic world. So what I try to do, and what, I try, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to give to you now is a summary of some of what I've been learning. The real take-home message for you is that it is a very, very complex situation and your emotional instincts might betray what it actually needs to be done. So my take-home message right at the beginning is, is be open to lots of different sources of information and to use that to put together, we need to come together as a consensual way for a proper strategy that will uh, do the right thing. The talk's gonna be in essentially three parts, like a, like a sort of a, an opera. 
And the, the first part, I just want to take a step back and, and look at the real principle argument from the circular from my perspective. What I really want to try and do, and this is going to be a bit of, this is going to be fun, I hope it's going to be fun, is I want to try and get you all into my sort of mindset, how I see the world. Because when I'm looking at you all and, and looking at all the materials around me, I can see into those materials because I'm a chemist. And so I've, I've got ideas, the molecules there, what they do, what they're like, what their origin is, what are the potential things we can do with these molecules. I want to try and give you some of that to get you in the, in the mindset. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to do an experiment together. And that experiment is, is that you're going to be an atom of carbon. Okay, so I want you to all imagine that you are an atom of carbon. Because all the materials we're talking about, all the plastics, these are all carbon-based compounds, materials, right? Now, so it's not too far from the truth that you are an atom of carbon because you have many billions of atoms of carbon. And although your current um, age of your molecules might be 20, 30, 40 years, indeed your atoms of carbon are billions of years old. And if you were just one of those atoms, you began, your, your existence began in the centre of a, a big star, where the conditions of pressure and heat are so outrageously large that they can fuse together smaller uh, atoms and into a, a new atom of carbon. So you just, you literally pop into existence. Now, if you could see, your, you would see would be an incredibly intense blue, bluey white light. And you'll be spinning on your axis many, many, many millions of times every second. You would ex feel an extreme sort of rush of energy all the time, a constant pressure, rotation, and all around surrounded in a very compact form with lots of other atoms of carbon. And there you would be for many hundreds of millions of years until one day, bang, it all blew up and you go flying into space, almost at the speed of light, really rushing forward and you're losing, you're, you're beginning to get, you're beginning to lose concentration and beginning to follow the geometry of space-time. And you follow that geometry of space-time until you hit a certain part which enables the accumulation of all these atoms of carbon, all of you, into one disk, into one central point which becomes a planet, say the planet of our Earth. Now, very likely, at this moment, there's enough energy about that you begin to, and you'll, you'll, you'll be surrounded by many other elements, in particular, a lot of oxygen. You're about 20% carbon and about 60% oxygen. Mo that reflects, actually, the concentrations, relative concentrations and abundances of these elements on our surface. The high probability is you react with oxygen. Bang, bang. And then you dissolve in water and you salt out. You salt out, you, you, you form an inorganic salt uh, um, of calcium carbonate. Now here's some, here's some wonderful pictures of near where I'm from, I'm from England, and these are the, the white cliffs around Dover. Over there somewhere is smelly France, and here you've got beautiful England. <laughs> and uh, so most, most carbon, probably you, are in the form of a, of a calcium carbonate. There you are, and you're surrounded by these atoms of oxygen, three atoms of oxygen, and a calcium somewhere. And there you are, Imagine you're there in this fixed position, slightly underneath the surface, okay, where it's dark, quiet, and about eight degrees Celsius all the time. And there you are. 
The whole year, nothing happens. You don't see anything. Another year, tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, nothing. Maybe a slight movement because of some sort of tremor in the ground that releases your back a bit, but that's it. Millions of years, still nothing. At the point when you're considering, you're, you're, you're thinking back to your beginnings, you know, the, 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 the heat and the temperature and the lights of the star and flying through the universe, and now you're here for hundreds of, year, hundreds of millions of years in the dark, nothing to see, nothing to hear. You're beginning to suffer from elemental depression and considering elemental suicide when all of a sudden you, when all of a sudden you hear it's uh, Pepik. And he's, he works here where you live. And he's above you now with his pickaxe hitting into the ground. And you can hear him getting closer and closer. And all of a sudden, Pepe breaks through. And you can see photons of light hit you for the first time in hundreds of millions of years. You can, you can feel the infrared radiation warming your, your face. You, you look around, you can... You can begin to open your eyes you see the blue sky and the white clouds and sweaty Pepik and he's there above you and he takes you in his he takes you in his wheelbarrow and throws you into the kiln where there's a fire about 1200 degrees celsius lots of infrared radiation heat heat is just movement molecular movement as you get more heat your molecule begins to move more as you're moving more then the bonds becoming less stable. If you get enough heat energy, eventually, bang, you kick off an atom of oxygen, you kick off an atom of calcium, and you transform into a new molecule of carbon dioxide, and you fly into the air. And there you are as a molecule of carbon dioxide. After so many hundreds of millions of years trapped underground, in darkness, you're flying over the earth, you fly over the mountains, you fly over forests. An average molecule of carbon dioxide spends about four years in the atmosphere. Seven years it can go around our planet before something happens in it. If you're hot, it's not a problem. You can swim, you're slightly soluble in water. You can go into the water, you can have a little dip, have a little swim around, you change your form to a carbonic acid, there's an equilibrium there. Most probably you're ejected out again as a molecule of carbon dioxide. Maybe a bird comes along and breathes you into it. You go through the nose, into its lungs, into its blood system. Hemoglobin tries to capture you, but no way. You're carbon dioxide. You do not react. You keep going through until the bird eventually exhales you, maybe over the Czech Republic, somewhere in southern Moravia. And the, the pressure conditions of that day are such that it pushes you down. You gently brush against the leaf. You go inside the, 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 wine, the, vineyard, the vine. You combine with water from the ground. And in a miraculous moment of sunshine, energy drives you to change your form again. Now you, you link up with another five atoms of carbon. And you become a new molecule of glucose. And there you are in that sweet solution in one of these for a year, enjoying the sunshine, dancing around with your mates until somebody picks you up, squashes you and converts you into a glass of wine. Which may be, uh, indeed very probably, the president of the Czech Republic drinks and you become part of Miloš Zeman for a short while. <laughs> until during maybe a talk somewhere, he because he needs the energy from the, the glucose molecule, which you are part of now, he converts you back into carbon dioxide, and your cycle is complete. 
your beginnings from the Carmelites are going through an adventure back to Carmelite, and once again you go into the air. And there you circulate around until something else happens to you. Perhaps you become part of a, of a new sapling and grow into a tree until you're cut down and burnt. Or you become part of furniture until that's thrown away and burnt down. Or you become part of an organism like you. You see, that's the difference about our planet and the chemistry of our planet. It is circular. Sustainability, chemical sustainability, is linked to the circular. Our next door neighbours, Venus and Mars, they have linear chemistry. Okay? Once you become carbon dioxide, that is it forever. Until, until it gets consumed by an expanding sun, it's over. It's linear. There's a beginning, there's an end. Time and entropy is played out. On this planet, we have a mechanism through which we have a circular chemistry. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why circular works. And the key to sustainability, I believe, in everything will be circular systems. So thanks to the genius photosynthesis, we have a system which can take the old and convert it into the new, implanting energy in each cycle. And thanks to, and the, the energy is locked up, and it's, of course it's derived from our sun. And it's locked up in the form of these molecules. And these molecules are either consumed directly by us or by animals, or they're locked into polymers, natural polymers, like cellulose in trees, for example. And that polymer chain of this solar energy, if it's put underground and buried for any length of time, no oxygen about to oxidise it, it's converted into this stuff, oil. And in this amazing mixture of carbon hydrides is where all those hundreds of millions of years of solar energy has been captured and stored in molecules. And with these molecules, we can do lots of stuff. At the moment, what we do is we burn some of that in our cars, for example, to use the energy to drive things and to create the conditions where we can do work. Work, any work, I'm not talking about work as in what you do, but work as in, the, in terms of the physical sense of the word, work requires energy to be performed. So it's a source of our energy, but not only a source of our energy. We also make lots of petrochemical products with that. Uh, we've got, what I essentially want to say is that we have a circular system. The circular system rejuvenates. Those rejuvenated compounds have potential. And then what we do with that potential is really up to us, our demands, our wants, our needs, our etc. Those are choices which come from, are literally determined from bottom up. And how we use this, these miraculous molecules is, to a large degree, what we make of them. Part two, the challenge. Are you with me? Are you feeling quite chemistry now? Are you, are you, are you, under, are you in the, 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 the loop, the chemistry loop on our planet? So, okay, so what's the challenge? Let's, let's, let's think about, so part of this amazing mixture of molecules we use to make plastics. Why? Because plastics are a material which offers so much, okay? Uh, they, they're lightweight, 
they're strong, they're durable, you can form them into many, many different forms, thin films or foils or big solid bits. You can do lots and lots of different things, right? And you can immediately imagine that's very much easier than chiseling it away from stone or, or cutting it down, fashioning it from wood, etc., etc. So really, plastics are, uh, what's important to understand is that, uh, first of all, they've got very colourful and interesting history, by the way. And if you go, if you go into our web website, you can find a talk I gave uh, in the room next door sometime about uh, the beginnings of uh, polymers and how we made them. So it's a, it's a colourful story. But what's important, I think, what I want you to, what you want to understand here is the diversity of these compounds. We talk about plastics as if there is, it's, a singular, it's a singular thing. But the reality is, is there's a huge diversity of plastics. A huge diversity of plastics. And the diversity comes from the chemistry. They're all polymers. So a polymer is where you've got a little molecule and you make the little molecule join with another little one, another one, another one, another one. You get a whole chain of these little molecules together and that's your polymer. Now, depending on what your monomer is like at the beginning, you get a different polymer, a different a different plastic and the chemistry the structure will determine the properties so for as many numbers of these little molecules you can put together into polymers you've got as many plastics and they will have different properties different levels of uh, uh, of uh, uh, solubilities and melting points etc so first of all it's another complication again we, we, we tend to be scared of complications but I'm going to give it to you because because I don't want to, I want the, the the love or the hatred to be real is that there is a huge diversity out there and that means it's very difficult to find a single solution to things because you're dealing with different things in the same way as we can't have a single solution for all peoples because different peoples have diff are diverse and they have different needs, slightly different properties, you've got to have different solutions. So you have to be open to different solutions. Okay, but what I'm going to do, and if you go to Michael's reactions, you're going to see a lot of videos about the kind of plastics which are used, which are revolutionising, by the way, things like the automotive uh, industry, where you, you've got big, chunky bits of plastic. Now, big, chunky bits of plastic tend to be used for a lot longer, which reduces their problem because they, they don't leach so much into the environment so, so quick. Plus, they're a lot easier to recycle. And uh, they add loads of benefits, mainly is that they're a lot lighter, but they maintain strength. If, you have, if you're driving around in lighter vehicles, for example, you're spending a lot less energy. So you're burning a lot less of the fuel and you're contributing less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So all these sort of big chunky pieces of, uh, of uh, plastic materials, which indeed represent about 30% of, of, of all plastic we're using, I'm going to leave to one side because more or less they are, they don't have too much of a problem because their uses, their lifetimes are pretty good. Our ability to recycle is pretty good. What I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on the real bad guys, the problematic ones, right? And that's single use lightweight plastic, single-use stuff. This accounts for about 40-50% of all production of polymers, right? So you're looking, and that's about 150 million tonnes a year. What are the advantages and disadvantages? We all know the pictures, it's easy to feel the hate, you know, you don't want, you're thinking about beautiful wooden material, but, but what are the real advantages and disadvantages? Okay, very briefly, because I'm conscious of the, of the time, 
But uh, advantages. Now, a big advantage of using these materials, as opposed to using paper bags, for example, or um, or glass, or, or glass, or, or other uh, more traditional materials, is actually the energy used in their production. So here's some real figures. So I've tried. What I've tried to do is I've tried to go to proper scientific studies to give you real facts and figures. Because it's very easy, I think, to get lost in, in all the, in all the, the just the pictures and, and, and the rest of it. So this is, a, this is from a real, uh, this is an analysis which we made uh, some time back. Indeed, I would say it's probably even worse now than it was previously in terms of the amount of energy used to, uh, sorry, even better in terms of how efficient we are generating these things for energy use for, for the plastics. But this is a, uh, you know, a PET bottle, how much energy we use per thousand bottles as opposed to a thousand bottles of, of glass. So roughly speaking, there's about, we use about a third of the resources in terms of energy to produce these things, the plastic ones. Regarding high-density polyethylene, those are the bags we use, or paper bags, then it's perhaps even, even more, it's about a quarter of the expense of making these things from paper. So the alternatives to the plastic would have their own problems in terms of energy usage. Another advantage are the, uh, the, the extension to lifetimes of the, product, of the products we're, we're keeping, you know, we're keeping, we're, we're packaging. So this is specifically relevant to, to foods. So a lot of food now is packaged with polymers, with, with plastic sealing and, and, and foils. They do have the ability to prolong the lifetime of these, of these foods significantly. And the uh, the amount it, it, the it does it, the amount of waste food waste we would have if we didn't use plastics would go up drastically. Health industry and hospitals, a lot of single use things which are probably obvious to you, whether it be syringes or the bags they they hold blood and serum in, lots of lots of single use plastics play an important role in our hospitals and, and health industry. These are going to be very difficult at all to replace. So that's another important thing. That's another important aspect. Also, this is coming back from the, my research work, really, is that plastics really are a very convenient uh, material to use for new, new innovative, innovative types of materials. I use plastics, for example, to dope luminescent molecules into because the plastic holds these molecules almost as if they're in solution, but in a solid way. And so they, they, they have rather interesting, and they have almost very unique, uh, unique uh, 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 advantages in terms of separation membranes, electrolytes. These are, all, these are all highly technical uses which are integral to many of our modern and future technologies. So those are the advantages. Now the disadvantages, and the sources of this, by the way, this is what we're learning from all our discussions on Let's Talk About It. Disadvantages are, of course, that their, highly, their high stability makes them a problem if we just dump them into the environment. So whereas if you dump a piece of wood or a, a glass bottle, okay, nature will find its way. These things really do, they don't present a problem particularly. Polymers, many polymers, many plastics do because simply they can withstand, they just don't dissolve, they don't, they don't break down, they can stay with us for, for you know, hundreds of years, perhaps tens of years. 
The number, the real number of years, is also a thing for, deba for debate. There's, there's many speculations of even hundreds of thousands of years, but we don't, that's not really, I can't find any actual evidence that, that might be the case. So, yes, it does stay in the, in the environment. How long is a question mark? But certainly, I would say hundreds of years. When the debris of these plastics uh, enters our environment, especially they break down mechanically into smaller microplastics, then of course they can be consumed by animals and fish, marine life, etc. And that presents a big problem because we do not understand what it does to the, uh, what it does to the, the gastrointestinal tracts and everything. But we do certainly have evidence that when you open these animals up, often they're, they're full of it. And that can, so there has, that's a, that is a, a big problem, a big disadvantage. Microplastics, so these are, so there's, almost perversely, if these things can break down somewhat, they tend to break down into small pieces called microplastics, and they have uh, even bigger impacts into, into environment, potentially. So we don't, but nevertheless, we, we don't actually know what are the consequences specifically. So a lot of it, I think, is, again, almost emotionally based. Because we know that it finds its way there, we, 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 uh, we put a big sort of tax on that. But we don't know. There's no actual reports about the exact effects. We don't know if we are consuming, let's say, fish, which have bioaccumulated microplastics. We don't understand yet what that means for us. It might be just it just goes through us. We don't know what's, 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 what's going on. Very little is understood, which actually means to me that we need to be uh, supporting scientists who are interested in working that out. We also don't know the effect on the microbiome. So if you imagine into the environment, these microplastics are, are going through, what are bacteria doing with them? What's the effect on that bacteria? Which populations is it supporting, which is not? Again, very, very, very little is known. Very little is known. So the question is, uh, what is the right strategy? What should, what should we be doing? There's clear advantages, there's clear disadvantages. There's a huge diversity of these plastic materials, each of which you know, require their own thinking about. We don't really understand the truth and, and what really is happening with microplastics in our environment, to what extent it has an impact on us. We, there's lots of questions still to be done. What should we do now? Well, that leads me to the, the final part, and that's the, the solution. Now, I'm essentially an optimist, and I think when you have large problems, it means that it needs large solutions, and large solutions need lots of people, clever people, who can, who can be part of that solution. And so I think it's an exciting part that we can be part of that solution. And I'm hoping that uh, through events like this, uh, Innovation Week, and also if you go and check out Let's Talk About It, you're going to find out a lot, a lot more, and even about how perhaps you can, be, you, can, how you can be part of that solution. But I'm going to talk about, I'm going I'm to simplify it to one, to, to, I'm going to simplify it slightly. Strategy one. Okay, this is the, this is the really shooting off the hip. Let's just, let's, we've got to, we've got to stop, we've got to stop plastic. We've got to stop plastics, get rid of them, replace all of them. We have to now step in, tell the governments to ban them completely. We've got to do this now. There can't be any more production of these things. It's got to stop. Well, if we were to do that, here there'll be several problems. And uh, these slides, actually, what I'm showing now, like this one, uh, the one earlier, 
and this one. These are boring slides. You might notice I quite like to use nice pictures. But these are boring slides because you can take pictures of them because this has actually got the sort of the interesting uh, information which might be very useful to you afterwards. So I intentionally haven't got any, you know, pictures there. It's just the facts and some sources. Now, so if we were just to say, okay, we've got to stop this, chaps. We're going to finish it now, replace, and that's the end. There'll be lots of problems. For a start, there are many current uses of plastics which really there are no sensible or rational replacements for. In particular, very highly specialist uh, uses, which I mentioned, with, with, uh, one of the examples I sort of briefly indicated earlier is our new technologies in, in capturing sunlight, for example, the, the PV cells which require all these plastics into there, uh, whether we are to our telephones, and also in particular in, in health and food preservation. Uh, the, uh, the increase in food waste would be about 30% if we were just, that's the estimate, conservative estimate, if it were just to finish overnight. We'd lose a lot, we'd have to be throwing away a lot more if we didn't have these uh, materials. Also, if we were to completely re uh, replace plastic packaging, what I tried to do was I tried to find some numbers for you, some information about what would that actually really mean. And so I got this source, but of course this is the British Plastics Federation. Who knows how, you know, how biased unbiased it's going to be, but, but there's, there's decent information and sources and backing up that these would be, this would be the effect. So the weight of packaging would increase almost up to fourfold. The amount of carbon dioxide emission to make the, the alternative packaging would also increase, as would the energy uh, consumption, as would the, the usage of, of, uh, of, of water, as would the, uh, there'll be, of course, an increased volume of waste, although arguably waste which would be uh, potentially less harmful to the environment. So it is not an easy choice here. I think a more uh, reasonable uh, choice, a more reasonable strategy, would be what we've been talking about at uh, the beginning, the first day of this conference, and that's to integrate it into a circular economy. What I think we believe, we, what I believe we, we need to do, I'm saying is as, as, as a chemist, is we have to understand that there are some, there are many things for which plastics are going to be very difficult to replace, and therefore we need to work out how to reuse these materials. Remember what I was talking about at the beginning about the cycling nature of how you're transforming into carbon dioxide and coming back, your, 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 your energy is fluctuating from low energy to high energy. One thing that remains always in these very complicated plastic molecules is their internal energy. That doesn't disappear. So we have a bank of chemical energy there. And that means that there's, there's, there's nothing, at least in theory, there's lots that we can still do with them. We just need to find the right routes. So what's incredibly important, I think, and one of the places we should be uh, devoting a lot of resources and time is our waste management. We need to improve our waste management and dealing with these compounds. A lot of these actually is going to be about local initiatives. So we have to understand what's happening locally. Who's using these materials and where they're ending up? That's why, for example, Anna, Anna Du, the, the, the young 13-year-old American girl who who's doing this amazing, got that robot looking. That robot's not, that robot doesn't clean up the plastic waste. It does something equally, if not more important, it locates where it is. She's interested in locating where it is. So then the, the resources can be, can be uh, concentrated 
at the right place at the right time in uh, retrieval. So we need to be thinking locally. We need to understand where is the waste being created and what's being done with it. So, so that's got to be very, that's very good. So, so really what's important is that waste separation and retrieval. That's the key. A lot of the, the, what we do with the materials then is the technologies are more or less sussed out. Now, if you speak to, and we did on uh, Let's Talk About It, we speak, we've spoken to several people who've got some really interesting ideas what to do about waste management. All of them say that we need drastic investment into the infrastructure of waste management. So one thing I would uh, you know, beg of you, if you've, if you've got influence in whatever field, whatever it might be, is to talk to people about saying, we need to be spending more money in, in how we recycle stuff, in waste uh, separation and retrieval. We need to be understanding that process a lot better. We need a, a much better infrastructure. There's all sorts of interesting uh, ideas and schemes and entrepreneurs who are trying, for example, uh, uh, we met one, one chap in uh, our Let's Talk About It, who is creating a new resources platform where it's essentially what he's doing is he's creating a marketplace for waste. So that if you're a company that produces you know, a load of plastic and you don't know what to do with it, here is a market where you can advertise that you've got this and um, other people who've got some good ideas can come along, buy it, take it and use it and produce something else. And I think, I think that's going to be a really exciting part of the opportunities which are presented by a circular economy. If you've got good ideas what to do with plastic waste, then there are now platforms where you can buy a lot of it and you can start doing stuff with it and you can start converting something which is low value into something which is high value. In terms of the chemistry, it's got lots of chemical potential. So I believe there really is potential there for good innovative ideas. So either we're going to use that, and that goes into the circle, that goes into the cycle. Some people are going to come up with new ideas what to do with these materials and have platforms where to buy it. Or it's going to, go to, it's going to actually go to recycling, where we, we essentially rip it apart and put it back together in a new form. Now, there's four main ways we can think about doing that. First of all, you've got mechanical recycling. Now, this is suitable for the plastics which are termed thermoplastics. Thermoplastics are those which you can melt and then reform. Not all plastics can do that, but some you can take and you can, you can heat it up until it melts down and then you clean it and then you reform and you can, you can go through more and more cycles. The one problem with this is in every recycling the material becomes a little bit inferior in terms of quality. But in many cases, who cares? In cases where it might mean the difference between your packet of cheese going off earlier, maybe that's a problem. Or, or in cases where in, in the hospital you need to keep something very you know, secure from bacterial infection, that's a problem. But for many cases, if you want to buy, a, I don't know, make a, a watering can or something similar, if it's a little bit weaker, it doesn't really matter. And there are companies now, Plast Plastica I think is, is one that we met, who are doing stuff with it. There's chemical recycling. So that's when you, what you want to do is, this is quite a complex, it's technologically advanced, you're not just heating it up and melting it and reforming. What you're doing is you're taking the polymer, this big chain, and you're breaking it up into small monomer unit, units, and that goes back into the system and you can make a new polymer from the old monomers. Now that means that the new cycle, the, 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 the quality of the material is excellent. However, it's, it's a, a pretty much it's an it's a energy-intensive process. We have to put in quite a bit of energy to cut the polymer up into monomer units. Nevertheless, it's something which could go, again, it's going to come with 
our conception of values of things. Are we prepared to pay more, let's say, for things which are recycled in these, in these ways? I believe that many people, many of us will be, if it, especially if it's done en masse, maybe the, the, the rise in, in prices could be, could be insignificant almost. Pyrolysis, that's very similar to the chemical recycling, but you're just using heat. You're using heat to crack it up, get the monomer bits back and pump it back into the system. One interesting aspect is something we've spoken, we're speaking to uh, a, a, a scientist called Mikhail Babich, who's got very strong opinions on incineration which I think has got a, quite a bad name. We, we, the, the idea of burning plastics seems you know, rather the, the wrong way, the wrong thing to do. Certainly it will be if it's you, you know, at home throwing in some plastics into the fire. But properly, properly done incineration where you've got, for example, in Prague in Malashitsa, I think there's a, uh, an incinerator where they, the, the technology is so advanced that there's no, there's no uh, problems at all with any pollutants coming, coming through and out. And the incineration then, what we do at least gain from these polymers is that, first of all, they don't get, end up in the environment, and secondly, we get the energy back. Don't forget, it's all full of that, initially, solar energy in those molecules, and we can get that energy back through incineration. Incineration is going to be really important for things which are... Uh, materials, polymers, plastics, which have some sort of, uh, have been exposed to ha hazardous, in particular biohazardous materials. So I'm thinking now a lot of the single-use plastics, for example, coming from uh, hospitals. So they're a perfect model of, to, to, to go into, to go into, uh, to go into the incinerator. What the problem is, is that, is that although all these technologies exist, unfortunately we don't make too much use of them. And of the of the 78 million tonnes of annual plastic of packaging production, 40% or more goes into landfill. And one thing I've learned from uh, all these interviews is, is that landfill is one of the you know, really bad guys. It's because it's still, especially in the Czech Republic, still so cheap just to dump it into, into landfill. That is a solution, unfortunately, which many, many uh, industries still use. And from what I've heard, it could be as simple as just the raising of the prices, the tax dividends on landfill by I think something like 30 odd percent before all these other opportunities to use these new chemistries, new, uh, new recycling uh, options, they can all come into play. So one thing, uh, one thing I think, uh, what another thing I think is really worthwhile doing, as well as trying to lobby for better uh, infrastructure on, on, on recycling and uh, waste uh, retrieval, is to lobby for the end of landfill. A lot of European countries have done this. I, I was speaking to Karina, who was in my panel today, yesterday in Sweden. They've just they just banned it. I think in, Germ in Germany it's something like three times as expensive it is here to do landfill, or maybe even more. So a lot of these new other alternatives come into action. So that's another thing I think we could do, is we could pressure, put pressure on to stop the landfill, start making uses of new chemistries to, to provide uh, new polymers, to uh, look at proper uh, all these, these new ideas re regarding recycling. I even haven't even had much time to mention uh, in detail the uh, idea you can even use more 
biopolymers in, in the sense that the, the, uh, the feedstock materials into the polymer preparation comes not from fossil uh, uh, petroleum but comes from uh, crops that we can grow or indeed you heard this morning from Israel the gentleman uh, Gold Alexander Goldberg who's using bacteria and feeding them um, seaweed to generate uh, biopolymers. So there's lots and lots of technological solutions uh, out there. So to conclude, are you still with me? Nobody's yet fallen asleep, so thank you very much. So uh, to conclude, uh, plastics, I think, um, in particular, the, well, from high volumes especially, they provide many unique advantages that are, are going to be difficult and in some cases completely impossible to replace. We have to accept that as, as, as a fact of life and, and work with that. Uh, the, I believe that the optimal use of plastics will require implementation of uh, the circular or circular economy principles. So there's going to be key to that is uh, finding investment into infrastructure for waste retrieval and recycling. Key to that is to pressure to stop landfill. Key to that is going to be uh, the idea of responsibility. We can even think about trying to, trying to encourage companies which are, are fabricating uh, plastics to look about to, to, to maintain uh, ownership of those right to the, the end of the loop. Uh, key to that is design principles, thinking about the ultimate destiny of these, uh, of these products, okay, so that they're going to be easy to recycle, easy to maintain, easy to, easy to, easy to send back into the loop. Um, we need to engage with proper experts. Often you hear that decisions are being made without consultation to polymer chemists. It's been left to people who do not understand the molecules. You need to understand the molecule. If you don't understand the molecules, you're not going to make the right decisions. We need to support research and development into new polymer types. There's all sorts of possibilities with biopolymers, we've heard of which some today. They might be more expensive, they might be lower volumes, but they're going to uh, contribute to the mix. One thing I hear regularly in speaking to polymer experts, we need to think about limiting the diversity of polymers. There's just too many. If we just at the moment when we recycle, we chuck everything, all the plastics into the yellow bin. But there's polystyrene, there's polyethylene, there's polypropylene. We need to find a ways to separate those out or limit the polymer diversity. Try and make Instead of having a polystyrene foam, for example, just stick to polypropylene or whatever and make a foam from that. That's, a bit, that's, that's a question for research and development. We need, of course, to engage to the public and speak to everybody here. We're all stakeholders. You need to know more. You need to realise more. Nothing's as simple. It's not easy to come to easy conclusions. It's going to require lots of work. And then, of course, we need to think about how we're going to coordinate and cooperate on an international level to try and make all these things happen. Last chance to take a picture if you wish. So, to end with, uh, you've got to choose responsibly. You've got to choose responsibly. Uh, the, the, uh, the bottom line really is that from all the, repeated, all the repeated interviews we've had with all the experts, they all said one same thing. The problem is not the polymer material, the plastic materials. The problem is our usage of these materials. And we have to look into ourselves to work out where the problem is and how to solve that problem. It really isn't, it's not enough to hate the material. We have to dislike 
the way we're using this material. This material has a lot to offer. It gives us a lot of value. We've got to think about how we're handling and using this material. It's all about value. We have to understand that when you finish drinking this bottle, actually the real value is not the water. The value is this PET, this polymer, this, this plastic. And it still has that value. We have to understand that value is important and that we can still use the value in these molecules a lot and a lot more. Thank you for your uh, attention. Please do check out Michael's reactions. Let's talk about it. Fueling Innovations, my website. If you, there's, uh, I think, no, that I'm, 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 I'm to the minute. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, for one or two questions, if you have any, um, a bit of time. But thank you very much.